Hey everyone. So, as you may know, today's episode was supposed to be the fourth part of our origin series with Stephen Meyer of the Discovery Institute on the topic of intelligent design. Unfortunately, due to some scheduling issues, that didn't quite work out in time. So, look for that here, hopefully, as our next episode. But in the meantime, enjoy this bonus episode that we did recently with John Stackhouse on evangelicalism. This ended up being one of John and I's favorite episodes, so we're pretty stoked to show it, even though it wasn't quite in the order that we thought. But if you did enjoy this conversation, be sure to check out our exclusive content on Patreon, where we have an interview with Dr. John Stackhouse on the topic of women in ministry. It's definitely something you don't want to miss. All right, enough of me talking. Let's get into the episode. In 2019, the Barna Research Group did a study on evangelicals. They asked evangelicals what words they would use to describe themselves. And the words that evangelicals use for themselves were caring, hopeful, friendly, encouraging, generous, and good-humored. But then they asked non-Christians, non-evangelicals, what words they would use to describe evangelicals. And those words were very different. The commonest words were narrow-minded, homophobic, puritanical, uptight, invasive, misogynistic, racist. What is going on? What accounts for this discrepancy between how evangelicals perceive themselves and how they're being perceived by the broader population? What is wrong with evangelicalism? of Spiritually Incorrect. On this week's episode, we have The Demonization of Democrats, Hollywood Boomers Despising Christians, and Why Evangelicals Love Divorced Politicians. I'm your host, Seth Hart. Join with me as Dr. Jonathan Lionheart. Howdy! I'm excited to find out why evangelicals like divorced politicians. It seems confusing and counterintuitive to me. Yeah, John, just keep that a note if you ever want to run for politics. Oh, wait, you can't. You're Canadian. I could still run, just not for president, right? That, that's okay. That is fair. You can't run for president. You're also not 35, so you're I too can young Swartzen- as well. I can, I can Schwarzenegger it because he's Austrian. He got to governor. That's me. That's me, baby. The Johninator? The Johninator. I could totally see you as governor. Like, you have that that towering, imposing presence that I feel like everyone would just love. I would make too many gaffes. Too many gaffes that would become gifts. John, if modern politics has taught us anything, it's that you can never have too many gaffes. Look at politics today. Too many gaffes just makes you president. 
<laughs> That's right. Yeah, if you have gaps, those are memes. Those are free YouTube reels. And it, it does seem like so much of the popular discussion is driven by those types of things. Yeah, no kidding it is. It just seems like every other day you're reading about a politician doing a gap. And that just, when has that ever hurt them anymore? It always just yeah. seems, just put them in the news and everyone just remembers them and nothing ever comes of it. Okay, we're getting off topic. We need to talk about evangelicals and not just politics, John. Although the, we got really into a discussion of the two today. Yep, politics and evangelicals, baby. It's it's a hot topic. Oh, I mean, first we had the exvangelical, so now we have to go to the other end of the train and do the evangelical train and talk about that for a little bit. Yeah, we we got to ask what is going on with evangelicals, and we've got an expert, a world-renowned expert, to help us answer that question. We have today Professor John G. Stackhouse Jr. Professor Stackhouse did a PhD under the supervision of Mark Knoll at the University of Chicago, and he's been a professor at a number of prestigious institutions, including my alma mater, Regent College, and most recently at Crandall University. He has over a thousand publications, including a handful of books. You may have seen him on television because, again, he has given over a thousand media interviews. That's right. That's one a week for over 20 years, people. And he has periodicals that have been published in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Globe and Mail, Time Magazine, and McLean's Magazine. And now, his most prestigious appearance ever on the Spiritually Incorrect Podcast. Yay! And also, he's an evangelical, so he's speaking about this from a personal basis. And John, doesn't he have some written material on evangelicalism that you mentioned? He does. He's got evangelicalism, a very short introduction. You've heard of that Oxford series, a very short introduction. Well, he wrote the book for that on evangelicalism. So check that out. I love that you picked it up as if our listeners could see it. I'm thinking of the YouTubers, Seth, the people who still have eyes and use them. Do we have a YouTube channel, John? We do now. Pitch for the YouTube channel. We do. We're on YouTube. So if you want to check out a lot of our podcasts, we're slowly but surely uploading that. Be sure to go check it out and you can actually see our faces. You can see the beauty that is in front of your eyes. It is It is glorious. We are real people. We're not just chat GPT put into an AI bot voice, believe it or not. Yeah. Uh, take this audio experience and make it an aesthetic experience behold my beard gaze gander upon seth's chiseled features uh, that's not my words those are seth's own words taken from the horse's glorious beautiful mouth i don't know where to go from here i think we'll just cut we're joined today with dr john stackhouse how are you today dr stackhouse very well seth nice to visit with you it's great to have you on so let's start off evangelicalism is just one of those broad terms. It can kind of mean everything, but it can also kind of mean nothing because of that. How should we define evangelicalism? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, evangelical just comes from the Greek root euangelion in the New Testament. And by way of Latin, we get evangel or the good news. So in the most basic sense, evangelical just has to do with the good news of the Christian gospel of the story of Jesus and what God has done through Jesus and the Holy Spirit in the world. And people who champion that are often called evangelical, people who are seen to identify and be identified with that gospel. So someone like St. Francis of Assisi, for instance, is sometimes referred to as evangelical. But nowadays, we tend to mean by evangelical and evangelicalism, a movement of Protestants 
that has its roots in both Puritanism in England in the 17th century and the Pietist movement in the German-speaking territories in the early 18th century. And these movements of reform and renewal of the church flow together into what we then see as the transatlantic revivals, both in the American colonies and in Britain itself. And we identify evangelicalism of that sort with people like John and Charles Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, and especially George Whitfield, the great preacher who spoke on both sides of the Atlantic. And downstream then of those movements of the 18th century, uh, which were various, some of them were Calvinist, some of them were Arminian, some of them were Church of England, some of them were Congregationalist and Presbyterian, and so on, to our own day. And globally, these are movements that uh, essentially, I would suggest, are understood to be the, the kind of the vital center of Protestantism. There are conservative movements that want to keep things the way they are. There are liberal movements that feel free to innovate and to take or leave whatever of scripture or tradition they feel to be outmoded in the light of contemporary reason and experience. And and the middle ground is held by what I think is still most helpfully called uh, evangelicalism, even if people don't use that word for themselves, as I understand some people nowadays are reluctant to do. Now, ideologically and theologically, what unites evangelicals into one group? The Bebbington Quadrilateral has become quite popular. What are your thoughts on that? Sure. And I think your first adjective is a good one of ideological. I think it's not helpful to define evangelicalism only theologically because there's really nothing distinctive about evangelical theological convictions. They, In fact, evangelicals themselves would say we're just trying to practice biblical orthodox Christianity. But I think there is a a, a set of uh, six convictions, some people are now calling that the Stackhouse Six, where I've worked uh, on the basis of, of David Bebington's uh, excellent quadrilateral, but I've refined a couple of things. So I would say first that uh, evangelicals are Trinitarian. Evangelicals emphasize God the Father, yes, and God the Son, and also God the Holy Spirit. Right back to the 18th century, the Holy Spirit is a very important character in evangelical writing right alongside Jesus. I think secondly, evangelicals are Bible people. Evangelicals put the Bible front and center, sometimes literally in their church architecture. Pulpits and Bibles uh, figure largely in evangelical iconography, we might say. Evangelicals uh, study the Bible, not just the clergy, but lay people as well. Evangelicals memorize the Bible. Evangelicals teach their kids the Bible. They're a very Bible people. And the way you are supposed to prove what you say is true in evangelical circles is to say this is consonant, at least, if not directly taught by what the Bible says. Evangelicals believe in conversion. They believe that all of us are born into a state of sin such that we need to be rescued by God through that, that you need to personally appropriate your faith for yourself. You don't necessarily have to be saved in a one-time only conversion experience. Some evangelicals say that, but lots of them don't. But you do have to personally appropriate the faith and then go on with the Holy Spirit to be progressively fully converted, what we call sanctification, becoming more and more dedicated to God in a lifelong quest for holiness. I think, fourthly, evangelicals are missional. Evangelicals are people who believe that God's given us something important to do. Now, the central Christian task is to make disciples, as Jesus said at the end of the gospel according to Matthew, to make disciples of all nations, to help people become Christians and to grow up into mature Christians. That's alongside, of course, our generic human task of making shalom or making the world flourish. 
And then to those four, I'd also add two more. I think evangelicals are deeply pragmatic. Evangelicals believe in getting the job done, working with the Holy Spirit with what you've got. So evangelicals have been willing to innovate. They've been willing to innovate in church architecture, in the use of mass media, in innovative approaches to working with children and with marginalized peoples. And then finally, evangelicals are what I would call populist. This is the one that probably needs the most definition. But evangelicals strongly believe that every Christian matters that every Christian, genuine Christian, is full of the Holy Spirit. And so there's a strong sense in evangelicalism that if the people of God validate what you're doing, then it must probably be, at least, the work of the Spirit of God. Vox populi is vox dei. Now, of course, the downside of that is the evangelical culture of celebrity and the kind of vindication by numbers. You know, we get this many followers, we get this many dollars, we get this many, and, and that's the downside of that. But the, the, the genuine, I think the authentic side of that is to say that what's happening in the church by the Spirit of God is not something that simply comes down from on high by certain church officials or certain august bodies of experts, but that the very people of God are the ones who are led by the Spirit of God to sponsor New initiatives like World Vision in the 1950s or the soup market and the, the, the job fair or the other kinds of things that may happen in your community. So again, the evangelical pragmatism connects with populism to say that evangelicalism is a place where lots of entrepreneurial spirit can be released to do all sorts of interesting things. Now, of course, again, we can see the downside of that, but the upside of that is a genuine sense that we're validated by how the people of God see what we do rather than by traditional authorities. When you find all six of those together, and I think you have to find all six, not just five out of six or four out of six. When you see all six of those together, I think you're pretty confidently in the presence of evangelicals and evangelicalism. When we think of evangelical, many might tend to picture sort of a, a white, middle-class, conservative American male. How accurate is that? That certainly is the stereotype, and that's because those kinds of people who look a lot and sound a lot like me make a lot of noise, and we tend to have some pretty good megaphones to amplify our voices. However, the, the, the global reality is that the majority of evangelicals are female, not male. The majority of evangelicals are young, not old. The majority of evangelicals live in the developed world, in the developing world, I should say, in the what we call the majority world. Dot, in fact, in uh, the countries of the origin of evangelicalism, the United States and Great Britain. So the much more typical evangelical would be a young black African mom holding one of her several kids, or a young Latina, a woman in a South American favela, or increasingly a Chinese woman in one of China's many house churches. These would be your much more typical evangelicals. If I could return back to the point you made about the Bible, how is that unique from how, say, non-evangelical Protestants or Catholics or Orthodox treat the Bible? We all use the Bible, but what is unique about evangelical use? Yeah, that's a really discerning question, which a lot of pollsters actually haven't taken as seriously as they should. Sometimes pollsters in Canada here and also in the United States have asked people like, do you take the Bible to be the, you know, God's word written, um, inspired and infallible and so on? But any good Christian should say that, Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant of any stripe. So what evangelicals do is to tend to emphasize the Bible over everything else. 
in that sense, they really are Protestants rather than Catholics or Orthodox Christians who would also prize tradition as another Holy Spirit-inspired source of revelation. Evangelicals would say, no, the Holy Spirit certainly has blessed the church with lots of good teachers and lots of good theology along the way, but the only definitive text from which we must all argue would be the Bible in its 66 books and the canon. Now, that would be at the formal theological level. I think practically what we also see is that evangelicals simply get into the Bible and use the Bible in a way that conservatives, who would tend to have other traditions alongside the Bible, even if they're Protestants, by the way, I should say, you know, conservative Lutherans would have their creeds that really operate right alongside the Bible. Conservative Reformed would be like that. Even conservative Baptists and dispensationalists, they really do have authoritative interpreters that you really don't go against if you're going to be part of our number. So functionally speaking, they don't actually put the Bible as a unique authority for faith and life. Evangelicals do. Evangelicals are willing to tangle with anybody. It doesn't matter if Augustine said something else. It, it doesn't matter if Jonathan Edwards said something else. It doesn't even matter if C.S. Lewis said something else. If the Bible says something else, then that's what we're bound to follow. And that's what distinguishes evangelicals from conservatives, whereas our liberal friends feel free to take the Bible as they find it, and then to endorse the parts that they can endorse, and then to set aside those parts they can't. So evangelicals have historically put a high value on activism and social reform. I'm thinking, for example, William Wilberforce and the abolition of slavery. Yet many evangelicals today seem to see social justice as almost a distraction from saving souls. Could you maybe help us make sense of what's going on here? Yeah, probably, jeepers, it would be a century ago, the broad evangelical consensus in the United States was giving way to a new cultural situation in which liberal Protestants and even non-Protestants were increasingly dominating American cultural life. And among the important Christian social movements around that time was the so-called Social Gospel, capital S, capital G, under the Detroit pastor Walter Rauschenbusch and others that were calling American Christians, which was, of course, most Americans, to uh, a much more faithful application of biblical principles about caring for the poor, particularly the burgeoning urban poor and those involved in America's increasing industrialization and urbanization. But Rauschenbusch was leaning further and further left in his own theology, and evangelicals began to get nervous about that, particularly when the social gospel got more and more linked, not necessarily, but historically, with liberal and even modernist, uh, even more extreme liberal forms of theology. So this had the very unfortunate effect of evangelicals throwing out the baby with the bathwater. The guilt by association became such that when fundamentalism comes out of the scene in the mid-1920s and further, everything that looks like it has anything to do with liberal Christianity is eschewed. And so social gospel language, the language of reformation of society, which had always been part of evangelicalism right back to the 18th century, uh, became suspect, particularly in the United States. Now, this is mostly an American story that then gets exported to other countries. It wasn't true even just north of the border in Canada, where an evangelical Baptist preacher, Tommy Douglas, in the 1930s and 40s, helps to found Canada's Democratic Socialist Party, the Canadian Commonwealth Federation, which now is our national party, the New Democratic Party. 
Meanwhile, in Britain, nonconformist evangelicals, those who are not part of the Church of England, are supporting the rise of the Labour Party and the Liberal Party. The same thing's happening in Australia, where evangelicals are supportive of parties right across the political line. So this division of spiritual renewal and social reform which had always been together in, in evangelicalism, splits apart, particularly in America. And then because of America's global influence, it affects other people as well. So that the time you get to the 1970s at the International Conference of Evangelicals, 1974, in Lausanne, Switzerland, headed up by people like Billy Graham, Latin American evangelicals make huge waves at this conference by reminding global evangelicals, and particularly British and American evangelicals, of their own heritage. And ever since then, evangelicals have begun, somewhat uneasily in the States at least, to rejoin what was previously always uh, an integral understanding of faithfulness to the gospel. So some Americans get that to this day. Others are still nervous about it. But as I say, it tends to be a more American thing than it is a global thing. You mentioned in your response there fundamentalism. And I think for some viewers, fundamentalism and evangelicalism are almost synonyms. Could you help us identify what fundamentalism is and the odd relationship it has with evangelicalism? Sure. Fundamentalism really, as I say, arises in the United States in the 1920s, and there are some parallels in the Anglosphere, uh, and then by extension to international evangelicalism because of the missionary reach and the cultural impact of America elsewhere. But it's distinctly an American phenomenon. That, as historian George Marsden and others have pointed out, has a lot to do with what I was suggesting before, the slippage of cultural power from the grasp of evangelicals. And they see America going down a very bad path under liberal Christians and others. And so fundamentalism is the militant attempt to grab the steering wheel again, to try to win back American culture. And when they can't, and when they get defeated, symbolically, particularly at the so-called Scopes Monkey Trial in 1925 in Tennessee, when they're nationally humiliated through this last-ditch effort to retain cultural authority. Fundamentalists then retreat for about 30 or 40 years into their own subculture, uh, and a very strong subculture. But as I and others have been pointing out, this was a subculture that was mostly Baptist and Presbyterian. There are lots of evangelicals who don't become influenced by fundamentalism. Methodism doesn't. The Reformed don't. Uh, the holiness movements basically go on their way. So fundamentalism is really a particular subset of evangelicalism that becomes hard and strict out of fear of cultural slippage, of declension, and of the presumption of, of power. And it's Baptists and Presbyterians who come roaring back into public notice in the late 1970s, early 1980s under Jerry Falwell and the so-called moral majority that helps to support Ronald Reagan and the resurgence of fundamentalism into American cultural life. So evangelicals and fundamentalists are related and they're, they're often literally related, but the style of fundamentalism is really a kind of militant conservatism. It really isn't the, the kind of genuine mainstream evangelicalism that I'm suggesting. Because of its militancy, because of its separatism, and because of its strict insistence on even second and third order convictions, which is not typical of the historic evangelical mainstream. I should say one more thing, just by the way, as, as a scholar of things Canadian, I 
point out in my own history of evangelicalism in Canada that fundamentalism has played a very small role in Canadian history. The same is true down under in both Australia, New Zealand, and in England. Fundamentalists make a lot of noise. They tend to be a strong militant base. And as we know, well-mobilized and well-motivated minorities can get a lot of attention. But in fact, fundamentalism as this militant separatism has really not been very strong most places outside Baptist and Presbyterian circles, particularly in the United States. You brought up Ronald Reagan and the moral majority, and that opens up the question of evangelicalism and politics, because evangelicals today, at least by perception, seem to be highly politicized. Is that correct? And how did it happen if it is? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Help us work through this. Well, a couple of decades ago now, I, I was involved in a project in uh, a late and lamented research body called the Institute for the Study of American Evangelicals. The ISAE, which was uh, headquartered at Wheaton College in suburban Chicago, was really a brilliant kind of think tank and a scholarly source headed by the eminent historians Mark Knoll and Nathan Hatch. And one of the projects that the ISAE was fronting and that I was involved in was about evangelicals and money. And this was a three-year project involving several dozen scholars from economists to economic historians to cultural and religious historians to ethicists. And we were looking at how evangelicals raise money and spend money and think about money. And one of the main findings we, that I, I found sticks with me to this day is how relatively little money evangelicals raised and spent on politics. And this was back, you know, this would have been the 90s and early 2000s. So the moral majority had already been cruising for a couple of decades. We'd already had Ronald Reagan and the first George Bush. And even then, the amount of money that we could find that evangelicals were spending on politics was way less than we were spending on relief and development, world vision, compassion, food for the hungry, Salvation Army, way less than we were spending on Christian education, way less than we were spending on camping even. I mean, it was, it was a, like 10% maybe of what we could find of evangelical expenditures. My guess is that that hasn't changed very much in the last 20 years. So I don't think that evangelicals in the United States are much more political than anybody else. I suspect that the preachers have reason to rally the troops, so to speak, especially around election time as part of trying to, again, the evangelical impulse to, to reform culture, to, to press our values, which is a democratic thing to do. Nothing wrong with that. But the, I think the, the question is, are evangelicals selling out their religious core for a political focus and even political advantage? And that is, of course, always a problem when one tries to properly move from the gospel of salvation of individuals and communities toward the world to come, and then press the implications of that out into social life. It's not just evangelicals who, of course, can lose their way and be much more interested in secular politics than they are in spiritual matters. But evangelicals would say, God loves the whole world. God's concerned about the whole world. We shouldn't have to choose between spiritual matters and social and political matters. The question, of course, is getting the balance right and in seeking shalom in the right ways. I think there's a particular problem in the United States that, again, doesn't happen in Canada, Britain, and down under under quite the same way to pick the cultures most like the US, and that is the two-party system. And the way the Democrats and Republicans press Americans into dichotomies, I think is really quite powerful. In, here in Canada, we got three or four national parties you can pick from. The same thing's true other places. So there's room to think about virtue being distributed across the political spectrum. I like what these guys say about this, but I like what these guys say about that. 
in the United States, the tendency to demonize the opposition and to angelize our party is just so strong. It's sort of built into the system that I think it plays into some of our basic human traits in a way that's not very healthy. And I think that's what we've been seeing in the last while in evangelical politics in the United States. Following up on that question, we often hear that American evangelicals voted overwhelmingly for Donald Trump. Is it accurate to say that evangelicals on the whole have been pro-Trump? And if so, what can kind of help us to account for that phenomenon, given that Trump seems a somewhat unlikely poster boy for the Christian life? Yeah, what's interesting, of course, this goes back a bit to to the Ronald Reagan defeat of Jimmy Carter in 1980. Um, Jimmy Carter, by all accounts, was indeed a poster boy for evangelical ethics, evangelical belief. And Ronald Reagan, divorced once or twice, went to church less than probably any American president since George Washington, not also an obvious candidate for evangelical favor. So it's not the first time that evangelicals have decided to put some convictions below other convictions when it comes to seeking a political influence. I think what's what's firstly true, I had hoped, by the way, Jonathan, when I first saw the support for evangelical for Donald Trump, I had hoped that we would find that it was just the sort of what I call penumbral evangelicals, the sort of social evangelicals, and not the real church-going serious evangelicals. Because there's often quite a difference between those how those two groups behave in American life, between people who are just happen to be Southern Baptists culturally or Church of Christ or something, and the people who actually go to church and give and read the Bible. In this case, however, that's that's not true. 81% of white evangelicals supported Trump. And that's the really crucial distinction here. It's not that the majority of evangelicals did. That's not true among Latino, Black, Asian populations. The overwhelming support for Trump comes from white evangelicals when it comes to the evangelical constituents. And that then has been identified by scholars who know more about this than I do with white Christian nationalism. And that this really doesn't have very much to do with evangelicalism per se, which is why evangelicals in other countries kind of scratch our heads about this. It has to do with Trump as the one who will make America great again. And since the evangelical image and self-image in the United States is that we are the primary carriers of the evangelical tradition that goes right back to John Winthrop on the Arabella telling the colonists about to land Massachusetts Bay, that we're a city on a hill, that we're going to show old Europe how to live in a proper Christian commonwealth. Well, the evangelicals see themselves as the main bearers of that tradition. And even if it's secularized, that's what we are called to do. It's our manifest destiny, you might say, to uh, help America be strong again. So when they see somebody speaking that way who will also say the right things about certain key issues like abortion, that's our guy. And that helps explain evangelical support, I think, for Ronald Reagan, uh, George W. Bush, and for Donald Trump as well. Can I ask, following up on that, I know that a very popular recent book has been Jesus and John Wayne which argues that Trump wasn't sort of an incidental or convenient person to push through a specific agenda, but is actually the epitome of what evangelicals have been pushing towards in the 20th century. Do you have any thoughts on the the thesis at the heart of Jesus and John Wayne? Yeah, I don't know if it would be fair to the book or to evangelicals to say that Trump is an epitome of that. He's certainly a kind of bizarre crystallization in some ways. Uh, I mean, in other words, I, I think 
we can assume that evangelicals wish that Donald Trump was not the scoundrel that he is. I mean, I, I really do think a lot of evangelicals really had to hold their noses to vote for Donald Trump. They weren't just winking at his his sins as well as his sheer offensiveness. So I don't, I don't think we have to, to, to think of them as being suddenly entirely blind to his faults. I think it was really a matter of we got two choices here, which one is leading in the generally right direction, even if he's a particularly horrible version of that. So I don't know about an epitome, but I do think that he does epitomize some of those traits. Uh, I think the machismo, the nationalism, the America first, the sense of American righteousness, the defensiveness about anything that might be construed as finding fault with America. Those are a lot of traits that would fit the John Wayne image. And I think the work of some other scholars who've shown this linkage with white Christian nationalism more broadly, less with the machismo and more with this general sense I'm connecting with America's messianic identity and mission in the world. To me, that's a little closer to home. I think the John Wayne trope is really fun and it got Kristen Demez uh, lots of attention and it, it's exciting and, and uh, all power to her. I say, you know, of course, enviously, because I'd love to get one-tenth of the publicity that she's had. But I do think that a little closer to home would be a little less sexy, but more accurate picture of American evangelicals seeing themselves as chaplains to culture, as, as those who are primary bearers of this messianic destiny. And, and by God, they're going to, you know, if somebody offers them a chance to take the steering wheel again, they're going to take it. But we haven't been able to see very much progress on the political front, maybe outside of the election of Donald Trump. And this has led to a lot of evangelicals having a bit of a persecution complex that evangelicals at least talk about either being persecuted or a coming persecution of Christians in America. And usually they appeal to Hollywood and the news media as sort of harbingers of this happening. Can you tell us a bit about this narrative and the accuracy? Do you think that there's any truth to this at all? Well, I read the American press fairly assiduously. Uh, I used to live in the United States. I studied uh, American culture under American historians at Wheaton in Chicago. I speak fluent American. So I, I do pay some attention to this, although I don't want to pretend to any more expertise than I have. What I understand is that actually conservatives in general have done very well at the local and state level of elections over the last 20 years. They haven't, and now they're increasingly doing very well in nationally. But the Clinton years put them back at the national level to some extent, but they've been very strong at school boards, municipal governments, state governments, which is why when something to me as specious as the alarm over CRT, as if critical race theory is going to undo America, why it gets so much traction, particularly at the municipal and state level, because conservatives are already there pushing this stuff through. Why the last election was actually something to worry about because conservatives had already taken over so many local and state governments. There really was some question constitutionally as to whether they could undo the results of the last election. So when conservatives cry out that they are under siege, it's sometimes you think that's a very convenient way to rally the troops and appeal to the base. There's no doubt, of course, Hollywood skews left. Of course, that's true. And, and Hollywood and everything with it. Mainstream media generally does that and, and has done that in the United States for like ever since there was a Hollywood. And it's, it's certainly true that in some of the big urban centers, they tend to skew left as well. So New York Times, Washington Post, major networks, that's the case. Less and less, of course, with the rise of Fox News and lots of others as well, can, can we take that seriously? Because 
once again, we are in a situation of multiple media. Now, to be sure, local newspapers have been dying very, very quickly, and that's very sad. But other kinds of media have grown up very, very quickly from Rush Limbaugh on down. So I find that the the sense that evangelicals are an embattled minority is true in certain cases. It's true that in some respects, cultural norms have shifted decisively away from evangelical views. But on the other hand, evangelicals have always been on the side of justice, particularly for the oppressed, have always been on the side of care for the poor and the needy, have always been on the side of including the marginalized. So in many respects, the United States of 2023 is far more evangelical than it was in 1923 if you're poor or female or handicapped or a person of color. When it comes to biblical norms of justice and charity, you're being treated much better today than you were 100 years ago, the less you look and sound like me. So I would say that evangelicals should rejoice in the progress of biblical norms in America, even if it's being pressed by people who don't like evangelicals and don't wear a fish or a cross on their t-shirt, even as we rightly can object to some parts of the culture that are inimical to our values, and we would like better representation there. And you notice I've switched to the first person because I share some sympathy with that in the States, and also I would say even more so here in Canada, where the, where the elite culture has become almost hostile to evangelicals, even as they press some of the values that I hold in common with them. Yeah, I'm thinking particularly about like Rain Wilson recently made the tweet where when watching The Last of Us, a character pulled out the Bible and he immediately knew that character was going to be a bad guy. And then he tweeted about that. He says, yeah, I do think there's an anti-Christian bias within Hollywood. And every Christian on the planet is like, thank you, finally, someone who's not a Christian to say this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we talked a little bit about politics. Do you see Hollywood as maybe one of those places that has a bias against evangelical Christians or... Are Christians exaggerating even there? No, I don't think there's any question about a bias. I mean, if, if Hollywood was anything like representative of American life, you would see families having prayer before meals. You would see families routinely going to ordinary churches. But it's not very interesting to go to a Presbyterian church, at least not on film, right? It's not very interesting to say a little prayer. So what usually happens is that if you've got a sensible Christian, they're almost always Catholic, like the family on... Uh, uh, Blue Bloods, you know, Tom Selleck's uh, Boston cop family. Right? And, and, and so that's that's part of their ethnic heritage. They're Irish cops, so of course they're Catholic. If you have a black family, they'll go, they're going to go to church and, and probably a Pentecostal type church because that's what black people do and God bless them for doing that. But an ordinary white Protestant family, you'll almost never see anybody wearing some religious symbol or reading a Bible who doesn't end up being the ax murderer in the last scene. There's something really weird about that. What is going on? I think there's this, this pushback that's been going on for probably 100 years against the hegemony of white Protestants. We used to run the country. We were the establishment against which everybody else measures themselves and the hegemony with which everybody else had to deal. So not surprising, there might be some cultural resentment about that and some willingness to take that down. We certainly see that in Canada. I, I think it's getting tiresome. I think it's actually getting predictable. And what I'm hoping is that a new group of directors and screenwriters, millennials and younger, uh, won't have the same chip on their shoulder that we baby boomers have had about that white Protestant Christian hegemony. I do think, however, the Trump evangelical axis has probably delayed that uh, happy cultural moment for another 20 years. We'll see. Well, speaking of that resentment, we've been hearing a lot lately about 
exvangelicals, former evangelicals. Could you tell us a bit about exvangelicals? Do you have any thoughts on the exvangelical movement? Well, I do. In fact, on my own website, johnstackhouse.com, I have been writing about this. I've got a series going right now on what we call Think Better Media, talking about deconstruction and about exvangelicals. So perhaps some of your viewers would like to check that sometime. And in a nutshell, Jonathan, I think that on the one hand, on the other hand, right? Typical academic response, but I really do think we want to give credit where it's due. The, the very project of deconstructing faith, the very project of criticizing what has been handed to me to see how much of it I really think is good and how much of it I don't think I want to retain, the very project of critiquing the status quo and trying to make it better, that's actually inherently evangelical. That's what evangelicals have been doing for a couple hundred years, is saying, no, the, the formal religion of Lutheranism in Germany, that's not going to do. Sleepwalking through another Church of England service, that's not going to do. We need vital, strong Christianity that is measured by the Bible. So to the extent that people are doing that today, evangelicals should be welcoming that and saying, good for you, even if it's our own traditions that are coming under fire, as often it is. The worry is that the grounds on which ex-evangelicals, deconstructors are doing their work tend to be moral. You know, I can't believe in a God who would, or I can't believe in a Bible that would say, and to some extent, maybe those are good intuitions and they need to be followed up and worked out. But what distresses me, I'd have to say, is that a lot of the arguments supporting the new positions aren't very deeply biblical. They seem instead to appeal directly to one's spiritual and moral intuitions. Well, of course, same-sex marriage is a sensible thing. Of course, universalism is an appropriate doctrine. How could God and any other sensible person think otherwise? This, this appeal to, of course, is an appeal to intuition. That's not an evangelical way to argue. And that way lies, frankly, liberalism, where Christianity simply is the noblest expression of our best instincts and inclinations. And I ask a couple of my progressive friends sometimes when we're in an honest conversation together, say, where does the Bible actually bite you? Like, what conviction do you hold because you think the Bible says so, even though it's inconvenient and perhaps even difficult for you to hold that? Are there any things like that? Because if the Bible's not demanding of you anything that you don't already want to give, either you're a saint or there's something, I'm afraid, deficient in your approach to the Bible. So this is the tension point for me, is to make sure that the deconstructing is in the service of a yet deeper and more biblical, more capital S spiritual understanding of Christianity, rather than the shedding of what I happen to find inconvenient or repugnant. That way lies a different kind of religion. So because of movements like this and a general cultural animosity towards evangelicalism, it's easy to see Western evangelicalism in the negative light because of these cultural things. Are there some positive things that evangelicals have done or are doing that we just don't talk about enough? Yeah, it, it seems almost as if the people who are doing the humble, good work don't really want to showboat and publicize themselves. Imagine. So others of us need to be a little less shy about that. My little Anglican church here in Moncton, New Brunswick, there wouldn't be more than 90 or 100 people that would attend on a Sunday morning, this beautiful little church in downtown Moncton. And somehow this church of about 100 people, Monday through Friday, every morning of the week, feeds, showers, and dresses 70 to 100 street people. That's a pretty interesting ratio. 
you have to really know where to look to find out that information. We don't put it front and center on the website. We don't call the national media and say, look at us and the wonderful work we're doing. I went to that church for a year and a half before I even knew that was going on. They were so modest about it. I tend to think that a lot of good people are doing a lot of good things, and we just need to help the media find them and help each other find them, because this is what you would expect of people who read the Bible seriously and who pray seriously and who care for each other seriously, that they're going to do serious work in the world. The work that evangelicals do to feed the poor, to find housing for people who need it for they're being reported in Christian magazines to other Christians. It's not making it out into the larger media at all. And I say that as somebody, I, I write a column for Canada's national evangelical magazine called Faith Today. And in the front couple of pages of that magazine, every month, there are half a dozen stories from across Canada of what evangelicals are doing positively. There is not a chance that CBC, our national broadcaster, is going to pick up any of those stories and run with them. But if any of those stories have to do with a preacher who's messing around with a congregant or stealing money, that goes on the news tonight. And that's just the way the news is, and we're just going to have to do what we can to counterbalance that through the media available to us. And just as a thought as well, especially with younger generations like us, every kind act is recorded with someone with a phone and posted on TikTok within 20 seconds, whereas within the evangelical circle, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're kind of working against culture on that. Yeah, I think we are. And I think we need to find, uh, and I think I think creators like yourselves can help us find ways, not of bragging, but of welcoming people to partner with us in the good things that God has called us to do. I think that's such a powerful message for my Zoomer students, for my millennial kids. We're not as interested in what you say. We're much more interested in what you do and who you are. And I think there are some good stories there. We just haven't done a good job of telling them. Well, you've heard it, audience, from Dr. Stuckhouse's own mouth. If you want to help spread the word, you need to immediately go to TikTok and Instagram and advertise this podcast, or else evangelicalism <laughs> will die. <laughs> well, let me, let me ask a closing question. Evangelicalism is usually seen as being on the decline in the United States. Is this true on a more global scale? Is evangelicalism on the rise in other parts of the world? Do you have any thoughts on the future of evangelicalism? Yeah, thanks for asking about that, Jonathan. That's a, that's a lovely note to end on. I mean, evangelicalism does continue to decline in the countries of its origin. I was in Oxford a couple of weeks ago and meeting with some fine evangelical leaders there. But boy, it's a, it's a tough go to be an evangelical in Britain today as it is in Canada, as it is in the States. And to some extent, also down under in Australia and New Zealand. But those are the exceptional stories. Latin America, evangelicalism is booming. Sub-Saharan Africa, millions and millions and millions of people who are evangelicals. In fact, sub-Saharan Africa is basically a kind of contest between Islam and Christianity, a traditional religions mostly receding into the background. China probably has 100 million Christians. Most of them are evangelicals. There's even a million Christians in Iran most of whom are probably evangelicals, although they live a pretty quiet and embattled life there. So virtually everywhere else in the world, evangelicalism is growing as people are finding this to be a message that connects well with their spiritual and material concerns. 
And my very sincere hope is that we can connect those spiritual and material concerns better than we've done. I think that my Canadian compatriots and my American cousins, I think we have been seduced into lives of comfort and security and the quest for the American way, which we have our Canadian version of as well. And uh, in many ways, we've, we've lost our way. But as a church historian, I know that history doesn't proceed forever in the same direction. And particularly as a Christian historian, I never count out the church as long as there's still a Holy Spirit. So we'll see what happens. And maybe the cultural tide of evangelicalism needs to reverse, and we need to be renewed by our brothers and sisters in the majority world. Dr. Stackhouse, thank you so much for your time. Good to talk to you, Seth. What really fascinated me with that whole discussion is how he tied nationalism into our founding narrative is of founding a city on a hill, this Puritan idea of creating the Christian nation. But what I also think is interesting that he didn't really touch upon is how a lot of this is just the product of the Cold War, where Christianity and capitalism and nationalism and patriotism and seeing the U.S. as a good guy came part and parcel with fighting against an atheistic communistic regime. And yeah. Christianity was sort of marshaled in as a bulwark against atheism, which was tied to communism. Well, and I think along with that, perhaps that might also explain how evangelicalism, which historically was an activist social reform movement like Wilberforce uh, and the abolition of slavery and the reform of society and morals, that was our history, was an activist social reform movement. But in the 20th century, in the late 20th century, Christians sort of rebel against social reform movements or things to try to help the poor and the impoverished or to help liberate liberate minorities and these types of things. And I wonder if in part because that sort of thing becomes associated with communism, with Marxism, with, Maybe. with this. Well, and I think social, well, think about what you think of when you hear the term social justice. That's lumped in very much with a sort of Marxist liberation theology type of agenda. And so we don't want to do that, uh, a lot of Christians think. And so we go to the other direction. And so an evangelical movement that's been very active socially in social justice historically moves away from that in reaction to the sort of Cold War and Marx and communism and these types of things. Maybe, because that divorce happened around the 1920s, which was during the Red Scare. But when you hear about this, usually it's Marxism is social reform equals social change. Whereas evangelicals have always been, it's not about social reform so much as actual charity, us going to places and giving to the poor of free will, not radically overthrowing the government and forming a utopian society or something like that. I, I, I could see it maybe, I guess. I don't know. It does still seem to be a little bit different. You don't think evangelicals just sort of reject a lot of social justice type of stuff because it just has this flavor of, oh, those are the liberals, uh, which in some ways is a code word for what would in, in the Cold War have been the communists or the Marxist or the Mark. I mean, especially in academia, which has been so influenced in the social sciences by Marx. Uh, maybe. No, because I think in the 1920s, I think it got more lumped in with liberal Protestant theology, which saw the church as bringing God's kingdom on earth in a very imminent way. And that goes back, I think, further than the rise of communism back to the 1800s in Germany 
And that began to move into American theology, which began to de-emphasize the actual evangelism and reduce the gospel to you know the universal brotherhood of man, the fatherhood of God, and these real basic ideas and try to just get rid of things like the Trinity and anything else like that. And that's whenever I think evangelicals began to be suspicious of these social gospel movements. Is oh, that okay. tied to communism? Maybe a little bit. I bet you, I think they kind of are two different streams that maybe ran together. Okay. Well, but, thank, uh, you're right. Thank God I was mistaken. You're right. Marx wasn't a 19th century German. He lived in the He wasn't 1920s. a theologian though. He wasn't, <laughs> but he's, he wasn't, he's still part he wasn't of the culture. I'm just giving you a hard no, time. No, he, he wasn't in conversation with Ritual <laughs> and uh, Otto von Harnack at yeah. all. But, but even if the split begins you're in the 1920s, you're literally saying, oh, he's from saying, the same country. Oh, <laughs> therefore, he's part of the Let same culture. Let me make a joke, Seth. But still, I, I, don't think the 19, I don't think the 1920s is, is the only moment where this split occurred and then never again. I, I think these splits are being perpetuated and upheld very much today and are made more entrenched through the Cold War and subsequent period. That's what I'm saying. I think they're two cultural streams, but I think the font comes from German I think that those streams than... can intermingle at the same time. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not saying that that's it. I'm saying maybe, yeah, maybe that has helped fuel it, but I think the origin really comes from a fear of liberal theology rather than a fear of liberal politics, so to speak. Okay. That well, makes sense? I... Yeah, Maybe. it does. I thought it was interesting. He he wasn't defensive. He you know he he was very considered and nuanced and all his thoughts. But he also presented a very positive view of what evangelicals are doing and have done. A, a view that very much counters the r very terrifying view I think we tend to have in mainstream media about evangelicals. Like I, I assumed going into this interview that he would just concede that evangelicals have become deeply politicized. But he brought up well actually donations to political causes aren't really that high. And it was just like, oh, that's interesting. Have I just taken for granted the mainstream narrative that evangelicals are way too political? I don't know. Another subject I was really fascinated on, uh, just sort of switching gears here, was this broadening of the frame of what an evangelical is. Because, you know, our intuitions about what an evangelical is are, that's a white male preacher standing up, condemning everybody. And that's what an evangelical is. It's a bunch of white men coming together. But like he was saying, well, actually, most evangelicals aren't white. They aren't in the West because evangelicalism is booming globally and shrinking in the West. And they're not these middle class conservatives because those are very Western layels. The average evangelical is a woman in Africa or in South America or in China. And that, that just... That was like a paradigm shift. My mind just went, like, it just exploded. I just had this mind-blown moment when he said that. So here's the thing that I think about. Outside of maybe Catholicism, I can't think of a more diverse group of people, religious group, than evangelicalism. There's like 150 million in Africa. That's the size of, like, an entire nation on its own. A large nation. Then there's like 10 to 20% in most Latin American countries now. And then you've got, he said, 100 million Christians in China, many of which are evangelical. And then it's grown in Nepal, quite a few in India. It's just, it's everywhere. It's, it's so crazy that a, a movement that in one location, such as America, which is quite homogenous, can on a global scale be so radically diverse. 
And it's also interesting that our frame of reference for what that movement is, is so localized and we get so focused on what's happening in America or what's happening in England or in our specific country or whatever it is that we just have no reference point for the broader picture of what God's doing around the world. And it's really interesting. I kind of get a little upset sometimes when people are like, oh, Christianity is on the decline, blah, blah, blah. And I just really want to scream. That's so ethnocentric. That makes the mistake of just perceiving America or the Western world for the entire world. Because as every estimate that I've seen is that over the next 100 years, Christianity, and this isn't just evangelicalism. If you took evangelicalism, it looks even better. But Christianity is going to maintain its share of the global population of about one third. It'll probably still be the biggest religion, you know, near the end of our lives, John. Well, that's true. And I think we definitely need to get a more Catholic view of birth control. That'll help. We'll be reproducing more. There'll be lots of little Christians running around, really take Speak over the yourself, world. for yourself, John. <laughs> no, you don't want a Catholic? You I like don't, to well, drop joking, just just... giant theological <laughs> bombshells in the midst of an already <laughs> controversial topic. Obviously, I'm joking. I do not want more kids. My two kids are perfect and a handful, but uh, no more, where that was please. Going. <laughs> They're, they're inf- my kids are infinite and therefore already fill the cavern in my heart. And, and there's no more space because they're okay, infinite on that power. blasphemous note, <laughs> I did see one statistic in a book recently, which is if you limit it down to committed Christians is what they talked about. People who attend church X number of times, not just people who call themselves Christians. Christianity is growing and it has been growing since the first century. And I think this is primarily driven by evangelicalism. And, you know, oh, yeah, it is it is losing ground in the West. But guess what? The West is losing ground. The West is shrinking in population. Western Europe is remaining pretty stagnant. The United States is growing, but that's mostly because of immigration. And a ton of those immigrants are Christian. A ton of those immigrants are from Latin America. So the the West kind of needs to say they must become greater. We must become less and sort of hand the baton on to the third world and the global Christian world that's becoming central. Yeah. And I think it's interesting. The third world is, you know, we talked about the Cold War. The third world is a relic of the Cold War. It's the countries that were too poor to join either the Soviet Union or the United States. So they were the third world. They weren't the first, the United States and allies. The second, the Soviet Union and allies, they were everyone else, just the third world. That's why we use developing nations today. But that term's going to be obsolete pretty soon as well, because a lot of these developing nations are going to be pretty developed really really soon yeah. and yeah they're not just going to become the leaders of the christian world they're going to become leaders of the world period hey listeners so i wasn't 100 percent sure about the facts that i was spouting off in this last section so i did a bit of research after the fact to see if what i said was accurate and i was actually surprised with what i found so surprised i thought i needed to share it it was too good not to add into the podcast with the help of a little bit of math I did some calculations to see how much of the global economy the Western nations controlled throughout the 20th century. So going back as far as 1900, I use that as the beginning point. There was not a point throughout the 20th century where the Western nations did not control at least half of the gross domestic product of the world. So for instance, in 1900, it was at 67%, two-thirds. And in 1980, it was at 60%, still pretty high. But then that number dropped to 52% by 2000. 
And the most recent statistic that I could find was 2018. It was 41%. In other words, the economic power of the West is falling and falling rapidly, while the power of the rest of the world is rapidly rising. Okay, back to the podcast. So I can kind of imagine someone at home thinking, well, of course evangelicalism has spread globally and is in all of these developing countries because y'all missionaries just went and imposed your worldview on the entire planet. And so that's why you're growing. And so in a weird way, yes, evangelicalism isn't a primarily Western religion, but it's because you imperialistically and in a very Western fashion imposed your faith upon the world. What, what would you think of that kind of response? It's funny what imperialism we're okay with. Because we're doing that all the time with especially Hollywood movies that all have very Western messages in them. And yet we export mm. them to the world. The developing quote unquote nations gobble them up. The non-Western nations gobble them up quite easily. And it, when they adopt those messages, we tend to applaud them. Whenever they start championing women's rights or democracy in the face of countries that don't prioritize that, we celebrate that. Even though it's very clearly us exporting our culture on to other countries. And we do this not just through movies, we do this all the time. But we're okay with that at form of imperialism because we think it's good. Mm. It, you just have to assume evangelicalism isn't good, even though in like, say, South Korea, evangelicalism, CNN just did a report on this, evangelicalism in South Korea is seen as a liberating force. That's interesting. Could you say a bit more about that? Yeah, I'm not an expert or anything, but from the article, it seems like that the evangelical church were the ones who resisted the tyranny of past regimes. And thus, their image is not, as Dr. Stackhouse pointed out, the people in charge repressing other people, but the exact opposite. They're repressed people fighting for the rights of the people. And that's why Christianity spread so quickly in South Korea and continues to spread from them. Yeah, well, I think it's just fascinating to think about Christianity and evangelicalism in a much broader frame. It really does feel freeing in the sense that, you know, a lot of the criticisms people are making about Western evangelicalism are valid, but that doesn't mean we have to abandon Christianity or evangelicalism. Perhaps it just means we need to evaluate some of the Western specific aspects of those things and how we've contextualized it, even as we admit that contextualization is not inherently negative. An Americanized Christianity isn't an inherently negative thing because the gospel is supposed to incarnate in specific places and times, but at the same time, those incarnations can take on different mistakes, and we just need to work through those. And I think having that global perspective helps us see and work through those types of things. And it's, it's interesting to me, because if you don't like evangelicalism, because it's quote unquote imperialistic, what religion or worldview hasn't been imperialistic? If you become non-religious, well, most non-religious people are because they live in communist or former communist nations. And that's a white Western export as much as evangelicalism with its own missionaries, the Marxist missionaries. If you become another religion, virtually all of them have some sort of evangelical flavor to them of evangelizing the lost. There's some, there's some exceptions as well. But at the end of the day, where would you go to? Like, that's just what it means to be human is that we trade culture. We take the goods and we want to bring them to other people. That's not a bad thing. That's been a good thing. And we've all benefited from it. And I guess obviously that can be done better or worse. And I, I don't think either of us would deny that that can be done in a bad way. 
But yeah, I, th I think there there is something to be said for the fact that our cultures are going to interact and we are going to impact each other. And the idea that we can exist as individualized, atomized, siloed off entities that won't impact each other is probably a bit naive, especially in a globalizing world. Spiritually Incorrect Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing and leaving us a five-star review. We're an up-and-coming podcast and every little bit helps. Also consider joining our Patreon page. Patreon sponsors have exclusive access to unaired episodes, different kinds of merchandise, the ability to suggest an episode, and even an hour-long interview with Jonathan and I. Check it out at spirituallyincorrectpodcast.com and see what you're missing out on. Sound effects from zapsplat.com. Special thanks to Jordan Birch, whose song Starry Night provides the intro and outro for this podcast. You can hear more of his music on YouTube or Spotify.